Welcome to the Mercy Church Sermon Podcast. One of our values around here is that we believe God will change a life today. And maybe that's your life. If you want to learn more about our church, our values, or how you can get involved with serving your community, head over to mercycharlotte.com after listening. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com. All right, let's get into it. Morning, Mercy family. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Mercy Providence Road. And to everybody, happy Memorial Day weekend. That's a big weekend this weekend in our, the life of our country where we remember the ultimate sacrifice given by many to secure and keep secure our freedoms, of course. One of those being one of the freedoms our country was even founded on. That was the freedom to worship, the freedom for us to gather and worship, y'all. And so we don't take that lightly, and it's a good thing for us to be able to remember once a year that that freedom wasn't free. And in that, I see such a clear, I think you could see this with a lot of things, but such a clear reminder, I believe, uh, maybe even a shadow of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who John 15, uh, 5 says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friend. And as we remember folks who laid down their lives for even strangers, it kind of points us like a signpost to the one who laid down his life for his enemies, not just to give us freedom to worship, but to give us the reason to worship, and that is freedom from sin and death. And so I'm thankful this weekend, and I hope as you take time to celebrate tomorrow, you also even take time to celebrate your ultimate freedom that Christ has won for you. Um, Hey, in this series, we're walking through the life. If you're new with us to our church, we've been in the books of first and now second Samuel. So I want you to make your way over to um, second Samuel chapter seven. As you get there, I'm going to give you a little uh, a side story from my life this uh, year, this past year that uh, just I feel like it's going to fit so well for us. My family and I had the chance to go last year to a little town called Bryson City, North Carolina. All right. Way up in the mountains. And we love the mountains, tons of activities and stuff to do. And one of the activities we got to do was we got to go and hike Klingman's Dome. All right. Klingman's Dome has this cool like observation deck right on the top of it where you can see for a long way. It is the third, it's the highest peak in all of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park and the third highest peak east of the Mississippi. Now, here's the thing. You get up to the top, they got this cool observation deck and you can see for a long, long way. All right. Our day was a little bit cloudy, but when the clouds broke, it was like, man, you could see forever. And we're up there and on the deck, there's these little infographics like you'll see when you're you, like a state park or something. And one of them says, from here, you can see 113 miles to Mount Mitchell, which is the tallest peak anywhere east of the Mississippi. So you got Klingman's Dome that is in third place, right? And then you got Mount Mitchell that's in first place. I know some of you are asking, well, what's the second highest peak? That's Mount LeBron. It's like not quite the best, but it's somewhere close. You know what I mean? That's what that, but we all know who the best really is, right? Um, I know, couldn't help it. No, so look, we're up there and it's like, man, you can see all the way to Mount Mitchell. And I was thinking, man, there's gonna come a time where this is gonna be really helpful. And I realized that today is the day that's helpful because today we are climbing the Klingman's Dome of scripture. It is the highest peak in all of the Old Testament. I would argue maybe the most important in the mountain range of the high peaks in the Old Testament. And from this spot that we're going to see today, you can see clearly to the highest peak of all, and that's Jesus Christ. 
All right, it, it's going to be beautiful. I'm going to lay out a promise that Bible scholars call the Davidic covenant, which just means a promise God made to his people by making it to King David. All right. Um, and it's so important that the promise has a name, the Davidic covenant. There are only four of these in the Old Testament and all of them have a name attached to them, the name of whoever it was that God made the promise to. So you got the Noetic covenant, the promise God made to Noah, the Abrahamic covenant, the one he made to Abraham. And you have the, which was another one, the Mosaic, right? The one that God made to Moses. And then you've got this one to David and the Davidic covenant is the highest peak in the mountain range. But from there, you can see 930 years clear as day straight to Jesus Christ. The New Testament builds a case for Jesus. In fact, the reason that the gospel of Matthew opens the way it does, like, listen, the reason Jesus is a big deal is because of what God said about David right out of the gate. Matthew wrote, you know, Matthew's the guy that wrote the gospel of Matthew. Here's what he says. He opens, he says, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David. That's, that's where he starts. Look, genealogies are a big deal in scripture. Truthfully, I don't know about y'all, there's still a big deal where I come from. Like my mother-in-law, her first question always when she meets someone, and it was true of me when she met me, who's your mama and them? That's her way of saying, who's your people? It's like, oh, you're, I was like, Don and Julia Shelton. Oh, you're a Shelton. Okay. It's like all of a sudden she knew something about me just by who I come from, right? Look, the first credential given to Jesus in the gospel of Matthew is that he's the son of David. And obviously not the like son that David had, it's the descendant of David. And it matters so much. He's from David's hometown and he's establishing, what Matthew's doing is establishing the authority of Jesus right out of the gate. He's saying to understand Jesus, you gotta understand David. Specifically the promise God made with David in the passage we are looking at this morning. But here's what I love about it. This isn't just like some cool, like Bible connection moment for you guys, though it will be that. But here's the thing. God is going to give David his greatest promise as he confronts David's greatest sin. One of the most important promises in the Bible is given by God as he confronts one of the Bible's greatest characters, greatest sins. And it's a sin we're all going to be able to relate to. So my outline for today, pretty simple as we walk through chapter seven. We're going to see David's greatest sin. We're going to see God's loving correction and promise. And then we'll see David respond. Now, remember that promise I told you about is so mountaintop. We'll camp out on it for a bit. It'll be right in the middle of the text. And my goal today is to be like, I'm bringing y'all all up to Klingman's dome. And I'm just going to kind of point, like, check this out. Can you see Jesus from here? And this message, I think that'll tie everything together it's very powerful. It's unlike any other religion in the world. Just one main point that I hope leads you to worship today. And it's this, y'all, the Christian faith is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. That's going to be the word you see God give to David. And it's the word that God has for us. My hope is that this great truth will ignite worship in your heart. If you're newer to the Christian faith, this claim is going to be a little bit challenging to hear because it's going to take control of your relationship with God out of your hands and says, you can't do it. You have to respond instead. But as any of the believers that are around you will testify, once you receive this message, this message God has for us today, you will find a freedom and a deep sense of love and acceptance beyond anything this world could ever dream up. I'm telling you, it's amazing. We'll get into it. We'll start in verse one, 2 Samuel 7. Y'all ready? Let's do it. 
Let's do it. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. All right, here's the thing. By this time, the people of God had been wandering for hundreds of years, not just for a minute, hundreds of years. And in their wandering, it's not just roaming about. They had been fighting. They'd been in battles. They had been captured. They'd been made to be slaves at time. Like all different things have been happening. And God had told them way back, long, long time ago, when Moses was their leader, to make a, a portable tent that was called the tabernacle that they would set up whenever they made camp. And at this very center of the tent, that was where the ark was to stay. If you remember from last week, the ark was, of course, the presence of God, held the presence of God. Well, finally, after all this wandering, finally they got some rest, some economic stability, some political and cultural stability. Finally, man, David, you can for just a moment set the sword down and Israel, you can set the sword down and stop having to sleep with one eye open, wondering what enemy's coming. And the place that they've settled is Jerusalem. Right, so here, David is, he's, he's been able to settle so much that he can build a house. He didn't have to live in a tent. David's built a house and it's out of cedar, very expensive wood, one of those kind of things that not only looks rich, it like smells rich. You know what I mean? When you walk in, you, you, can, you can smell it. Well, David, now that he's not fighting, he's got some time. And I can just picture David and Nathan. Um, Nathan, by the way, is new for us. This guy that was just mentioned, he's new for us. He's now the prophet um, over Israel and one of his jobs, like the prophet or the national prophet, is to kind of be like the king's pastor. Because even the king needs somebody to check him when he gets out of control, right? So that's what Nathan's job is. And I can just see them sitting out kind of on their on David's back cedar deck, you know, and he's looking out at that tent and, you know, maybe the threads are showing. I don't know. I just know that most tents don't look fresh after a couple of hundred years of regular use in a desert especially where they've been sacrificing animals and burning incense hundreds of years. And David's like, man, God's worth more than this. He is worthy of more. I got to build God a nice house. That's what he tells Nathan. Nathan responds to the king, go and do all that is on your mind for the Lord is with you. And I know what some of y'all are thinking when you see that. What a classic pastor response. You feel led to give a donation to the ministry? Go and do all that is on your mind. The Lord is with you, right? I know. I want you to see that at first glance, this doesn't seem like that bad of a motive. Does it? But yet, what we're going to see is just like last week with our guy Uzzah, David seems, if you remember last week, Uzzah was unaware that he was more defiled than the ground that the ark was falling towards was. And he thought he could help God out. And David seems to be unaware of who God really is and unaware of who he really is and what's going on within him. David wants to build God a house, but God doesn't want it. Watch this. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go to my servant David and say, this is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I've not dwelt in a house Instead, I've been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In other words, did, did I ask? No. See, God made the Israelites put a tent together 
way back when Moses was in charge. Again, this is like another peak in the Smoky Mountain Range, hundreds of years earlier, because God wanted to be with his people as they roamed about, right? Remember, God, God exists outside of time. He knew what their story held for them, right? He knew it, but he didn't want them to have to pilgrimage to him. He wanted to pilgrimage with them. You see, the difference is, is very important, guys. And that's why the end of Matthew 1 that started with Jesus, the son of David, ends calling Jesus Emmanuel who? God with us. And what you're seeing here is a reminder here in 2 Samuel that God has always been God with us when it comes to God and his people. It's, there's no other God like this. It's awesome. Who, this God insists, he insists on staying right with his people. We'll keep coming back to that today. Verse seven, God says, in all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? <laughs> I love that right at the end. I like how God is bringing up the cedar. You know, that David's real impressed with himself. He's like, I I'm sure you think your wood paneling is nice, David. First off, I made cedar, right? That is what he's saying. I made it, okay? And that's nice. That's cute. Buddy, I got streets of gold. Wait till you see how I roll when you get here, right? You keep the cedar, David. Verse eight. So now this is what you're to say to my servant, David. This is what, I love it when God does this. He kind of reminds a little bit, reminds David who he is. This is what the Lord of armies that's an important title there. The Lord of armies says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock to be ruler over my people, Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have destroyed all your enemies before you. The Lord is starting towards his one point and our one point today. The point of today's message, it starts with them saying, David, have you forgotten how you got here? The fact that you're sitting on your cedar Adirondack chair on your cedar back deck is solely because I appointed it to be so. I took you from the pasture. You were a nobody shepherd. I made you king. The only reason you defeated Goliath, the only reason you defeated the Philistine army the first time, the only reason you had victory when you were fighting for the Philistines in that weird chapter of your life, and then the only reason you had victory when you beat the Philistines the second time was because of me, because I've been with you. It had nothing to do with you, David. And clearly David needs this reminder. Let's get our reminder real quick. Remember the Christian faith is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. It's not about what you do for God. I'm telling you, it's a big deal today. Our God doesn't need your help. And now that God has reminded David about what he's done, God says, now here's what I will do. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. I want you to, that's gonna be a promise we're gonna hang on to today. We'll live there, not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done. Ever since the day I ordered the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. I will, I will, I will. David is the most prominent leader in the Old Testament, y'all. He's the Klingman's Dome, the highest point 
in the Smoky Mountains. And what God is saying to Israel's most notable leader is that God is the one who did it all and God is the one who will do it all. He's putting David back in his place. Look at this, verse 11. I wanna show you verse 11 against verse one. If you've got it in your Bible, you can see it real quick. Verse one, the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. In summary, God is very poignantly saying, I brought you this far, I will take you the rest of the way. It's all me. You don't do for me, I do for you. I told you we covered three things today. And the first one is David's greatest sin. David's greatest sin was his pride. And the scary thing about pride is that most of the time, y'all, we are blind to it. David can't see that he has placed himself in a mindset where he thinks that God needs his help, where he is somebody compared to God. And I say this is David's greatest sin because it's the root of all David's other sins that we'll see in the coming weeks. And they are many. But in the root of all of them is pride. It's that David sets the rules. David can do what David wants to do. After all, David's king of the castle. I say that because pride is, y'all, it's the seed from which all sorts of evil things grow in our hearts. It's not just David's greatest sin, it's ours. It was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. When they ate the fruit, what they did is they elevated their wisdom and their desire over God's authority. That's pride. God is wrong. I am right. Eugene Peterson made a just really insightful observation about this uh, response that God has to David. Listen to this. He said, I think David was just about to cross over from a line of being full of God and being full of himself. David riding the crest of fame, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people and captured the allegiance of all Israel. He was heading towards success and he began to think he could do God a favor. But if David continues to develop along these lines, he will be ruined as a representative of God's kingdom. If any one of us develop an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to who we are, then our own action and importance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. What a good word to so many of us. How easily, oh, I know I can do it. How easily we can slip into an operating system where our identity is built on our own action and importance. That's pride. When we build our identity there, that means our, when I say identity, I mean our sense of security, our sense of importance, of value, worth, when we build that on anything other than the grace of God, we ruin our ability to represent God. I'm telling you, when I look at the makeup of our city, I'm reminded of what Billy Graham said. It's probably not your sin that's going to keep you from heaven. It's your good works. Because your good works will make you feel like you don't need the grace of God. Are good works bad? Of course not. God created you for them, Ephesians 2.10. Was building a house for God bad? No, David's, God's gonna get David's son to build him a house. But good works can come from a prideful heart. And what did God say when he anointed David? He cares about the heart. In Charlotte, I see so many people who think they have it all together so much so that they don't need God. Maybe though, they'll pay some lip service to God. Maybe they'll give to some charity here and there because that'll, why? That will make them look good. And God is like, you think because you live in a house of cedar 
you are somebody because you drive this and because you live there. No, no, let's be real clear. All that you have, God gave you. I don't care if you're a world-class athlete. I know a city the size we got, and even in our church, world-class athletes or coaches, you can be the CEO of Bank of America or Wells or one of the other 6,000 banks that are here in our city, right? I don't care if you got 2 million followers on social media, whatever you have, all of it is cedar. What you have, God gave you. And what you have, you will only have for a brief period of time. Then you will die and nothing you did, nothing you built, nothing about you will justify you when you go and stand before God. I read this week that um, the island of Manhattan is sinking. You guys know this, it's sinking. Four millimeters per year, it's sinking. And here's why. The weight of over 1 million buildings is sinking the island. What a metaphor for our lives, right? The weight of all we do to grow our own kingdoms can sink us and cause us to entirely miss God and all he's doing. Your greatest sin, my greatest sin, it's our pride. What a kindness of the Lord to send Nathan to David with this word at this moment. And by the way, it's not the last time he's gonna do it. Maybe today, this is the word you need because maybe you got a little full of yourself. By the way, the, the way that you can tell, how do you kind of tell because it's such a blind spot? One of the ways you can tell is that you're just not really satisfied that much. You're always looking beyond at the next move you can make to build your kingdom instead of being thankful for what you have. You're always looking to serve yourself and make yourself look good. See, David was actually just following suit with all the other world religions. Ancient kings build a house for their God, and in turn, the God would then establish their rule and reign. And God is saying he's not like other gods in any way. Our God is not like other gods. Our God says Christianity is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. In fact, to emphasize this to David, he uses David's sin that he's gonna, he thinks he's somebody so he's to build a house. And he flips it. And in this flip, he flips the house. House flipper. That's a side thing I just thought of. But God's going to flip this and that's going to become the language, the metaphor God uses for the Davidic covenant, for this great promise. I love the way God does it. Look at this. The Lord declares to you, verse, finish verse 11, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Now, what's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about a literal physical house. No, David's already got Cedarville. He's taken care of there, right? God is saying, no, no, I'm gonna build you a dynasty, a dynastic kingdom. We've been, this. look, you gotta see this. This whole time we've been kind of walking up Klingman's Dome and now we're arriving at the observation deck. This is the mountaintop passage in the Old Testament. Verse 12, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you, your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the Davidic covenant. It's simple, but it's important. God says he will establish a descendant's kingdom forever. Y'all, that's a long, forever is a long time. I can't sing this week of, um, it's like, it was a Sandlot. It was a great summertime movie where the little guy's like forever, right? Just kind of emphasizes it so much. Forever's a long time. Let, 
that says something about the nature of this promise. Forever means that God is making a promise that neither sin, nor death, nor time can break. That's powerful. One of the descendants of David will reign over an eternal kingdom. Verse 14, I will be his father. He will be my son. And then then it gets interesting, maybe even a little confusing for us. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. I told you we'd stop right here because we've arrived at this where we can see the, the highest mountaintop so clearly. Now, the question though is who is the son? Who is the son that God's talking about? Well, as with a lot of Old Testament prophecies, there are two sons being talked about. There's an immediate fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. In terms of immediate fulfillment, it is David's literal son, Solomon, is the one that God chooses to build the temple. Jerusalem's established as the capital city of God's people. The temple is God's permanent dwelling place in the center of his people so that he is still, get this, with them because he still wants to dwell among them. Solomon oversees really the peak of the golden age of Israel, but he ends up being a disappointment as king. His pride reveals itself differently from his father's. And actually, no, in some ways, exactly like his father's. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. But um, what, the way it reveals itself is an insatiable lust and a divided heart. Solomon marries 700 women. That is 699 too many, okay? And many of these women that he marries, they worship other gods and bring them into Solomon's house. And that's why he has this divided heart. And the house that he builds for God, Solomon's temple, as it's often called, gets destroyed, which means he can't be the one from verse 13, who's worthy of the forever throne because he's not forever. And the rest of the Old Testament carries this search of God's people looking and waiting and hoping and anticipating and wondering where is the forever king? The one who will sit on David's throne forever. And the gospel of Luke opens this way. An angel's talking to Mary saying, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you'll name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son. Remember back promise. I will be his father. He'll be my son. He'll be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, his kingdom will have, he will reign. Not he and his descendants. He will reign forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Again, this is Mount Mitchell. This is the highest point. Jesus would be the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. He'd be the ultimate fulfillment even of the temple that God told Solomon that God told Solomon to build. Look at this. I don't know how much time I have for this, but I love it. John 1. John 1 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I think it's like verse 14, dwelt among us. That's our English word, dwelt. The literal word is tabernacled. Like Jesus became the presence of God, where? With his people. So Matthew, Emmanuel, God with us. John, 
tabernacled. God, the presence of God is with us. All of the gospel writers are trying to tell you that the promise God made to David is being fulfilled in Christ. He's the ultimate temple and he is the fulfillment of the king God promised. Now, here's the question though. What does that mean for us? What does it matter? First of all, it means hope. This passage says one day God's people This is our passage, 2 Samuel 7 for today. One day God's people won't suffer or be oppressed anymore. But the reality is it doesn't always feel like that now. But if Jesus was only a savior, it means our sins will be forgiven, but it wouldn't fix all the wrongs. But since he is the reigning king, the forever king, that neither sin, death, nor time can take down his throne, it means we can hold out hope that one day he will make all things right. Y'all, so I I can get through this day because I'm confident my king reigns and he is making all things right. And in the meantime, he promises to use my pain for my good, Romans 8, and for his glory. And so I can trust him. It means hope. It also means purpose. If Jesus is king, then my purpose for my life is whatever the king says it is. Now I have purpose and direction. And only because he is the good king can I trust that his purpose is actually better than the one that I would make up for myself. My life is no longer about building my kingdom. It's about serving his kingdom. The Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine, yours. This is how Jesus confronts your pride. You can't have Jesus as savior if you haven't submitted to him as king. You can't guys. It also means peace in every area of life. It means hope. It means purpose. It means peace. The king says to us, just as God says to David, Jesus says to us, you're going to build me a house? No, I'll build you a house. I want to talk a second um, to new parents, parents of little ones. Listen, what, what makes you think you're going to be a good parent? Like what's giving you that hope? And I realize right now there's some moments where you're like, nothing, I'm, there's no chance I'm a good parent. I've said some things in the early hours that shouldn't, you know, I get, I get it. But when you start, when you actually sit down, you're like, man, how am I going to do this? Solomon, funny enough, David's son, he's the one that wrote in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And then he talks about what a blessing children are. So listen, read your books, listen to all your podcasts, and all that, but I want to offer you this peace that your king reigns that should give you peace from parenting anxiety. Jesus, your king reigns. John 15, five says, apart from him, you can do nothing. And I was thinking this week about this when it comes specifically, just what are the things that we need peace in the middle of an anxiety? And what I see a lot of right now is I see a lot of anxious new young parents And I'm telling you, you have an amazing evangelistic opportunity you don't even realize. This isn't the time to cocoon off from the world, but to live in the peace of Christ among other young parents that don't know the hope of Christ and they're stressing like crazy. And when they they look at you, they're gonna ask, how are you so calm? What book did you read? What podcast did you listen to? How did you get so calm? You can share about the peace of Christ, Philippians 4, that transcends all understanding. 
Let me briefly co- close with David's response. Don't have time to do it justice. Starts in verse 18. Then King David went in. You know where he went? He went into that tabernacle. He went into that thing that he thought, nah, I need to do something better for the Lord. No, he went in and he sat down in the Lord's presence. There's something about that posture. Those of you that the Lord, I, I pray, is convicting over your pride. Well, hey, you're here. You're among God's people. I hope you'll sit and respond as David responded. Look, who am I? <laughs> David began today with a little bit of a I'm him mindset, right? But look, after hearing the Lord speak over him, the Lord rebuke him, who am I? Lord God, and what is my house that you brought me this far? What you have done so far, I love, it was a little thing for you, Lord God. For you've also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God, because of your word and according to your will, you've revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. Look at how many times he's repeating this. Lord God, Lord God, there's no one like you. There is no God besides you. No one, as all we have heard confirms. Who's like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a, why? To make a name for himself and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people. You redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people Israel to be your own people forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. The awesome thing is that the promise that he will make a people and redeem a people has become the promise to the church. Once you were not a people, 1 Peter 2, but now you are God's people because once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy, redemption. So what is our response to that? Humble, whole life worship. Just like David, humble, whole life worship. Lord, you're great. So with everything I have, what else can I do? But praise you, who am I? Who am I, Lord? All I can do is praise you, not to make a name for myself, not to help you, but solely because you're worthy. You're worthy. It's the simplicity of our faith, y'all. Christianity is not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. Christ lived the perfect life that you did not live. He died your death in your place as a payment for your sin. He rose again. He is building his church. He is ruling and reigning. What is there for you to do but believe and worship? Believe and worship. And by believing, have life in his name. Have life in his name. That's the offer to you today. Believe and be free of your pride. Believe and be free. Believe and be free from yourself. One of my um, favorite books, a little book by um, Tim Keller. It's 40 pages, I think. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And basically, receive the freedom in Christ and you will be free of you. And that's a really good thing. It's a really good thing. Let me pray for you. And then we'll continue in worship. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel.
Thank you that it's not about what we do for you, but all about what Christ has done for us. What a kindness, God. What a kindness that you're with us even now. That you have moved from dwelling with your people to now dwelling in your people through the Holy Spirit. What a gift. What a gift that you have redeemed us, not because we deserve it, because you're good and you love us. Would you take a moment at your seat and just thank the Lord and maybe repent? Repent of your pride. Where have you been building your kingdom? Maybe it's been some time since you said, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? I've been thinking and living my dreams, not yours, not your purposes. Maybe you just need to receive the gospel and the salvation of Christ today. Right where you're sitting, listen, don't take another minute to try and think about what you need to go clean up, what you need to get right, what you need to try harder. You can't. You can only receive what God has done for you. You don't build his house. He builds yours. So would you receive the gift of forgiveness today? Simple as saying, God, I believe that Christ died for my sins. Should have been me because I'm a sinner. He died for me. I believe it. Thank you, God. I believe he rose again. I believe he defeated death. I could have never done that. I was doomed apart from him. But because he's alive and I'm with him, I have new life. I received that new life today. God, thank you for the work you're doing. Both our campuses and our hearts, changing lives, what you do, we believe. and We expect you to change lives even today. As we celebrate baptism at both of our campuses, we celebrate, God, you are changing lives. We worship you and we praise you for it. Thank you for the hope that we have only in Christ. It gives us hope. It gives us purpose. It gives us a peace that passes understanding. We love you. We praise you with all our life. Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen.